Good morning. I'm Pastor Kelly Madland. I'm the youth pastor here at Bethany Baptist. If you're new with us, welcome. <laughs> this is my crew over here. I love them. They're awesome. Um, and uh, oh, Colin and I got to go to the Guess Who's Coming to Dinner last night. How many of you took part in that? Yeah, hands, 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 good. We had a great time. It was so good. And I heard other people say, oh, we need to do this more. We should do this more. It, it's so good to get together with people in the family of God and get to know each other, share things with each other. We, the group we were with, we went deep real fast. <laughs> and we got to share our testimonies. And um, we talked about some important issues. And uh, it was just a really fulfilling evening. So thank you, Nancy, for organizing that. And I highly recommend that you take part in that uh, the next time it comes around. It comes around a couple times a year. It's a good way to get to know new people. Over the fall, we have been engaging with the idea of stewardship and what that means as individuals, for us as God's people, and as the church. The title of our series has been called Mine, based out of God speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 1, he says, But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That message isn't just for the people of Israel, because Jesus then extended it to everyone through his death and resurrection. And if you have accepted the Lord, he calls you mine. We have defined stewardship as the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. We've established that over the course of this series that all things belong to God. We are entrusted with what he has given us to oversee these things and help them flourish. We've looked at money, tithing, our possessions, our time, our talents, our spiritual gifts. And last week we looked at creation itself, and as Christians, how we have a mandate to take care of the world around us and help it flourish. If you would like to explore these ideas further or review them, maybe you missed a sermon, you can go to our website. Uh, we post our sermons there every week, bethanybaptist.bc.ca. That's the homepage, and then you click on media slash resources. That's where you'll find the sermons. Today, as we wrap up this series... We're going to look at the idea of stewardship of self, self-stewardship, self-management. In stewarding my life, this life that God has given me and trusted me with, what does it look like to steward me? If you are exploring Christianity, or if you are somebody who, maybe you're a Christian and you're like, what is it that we really believe? And you're looking for a way to study sort of the, the core beliefs or the scope of that kind of thing. I encourage you to, a good place to go is a catechism. It's, it's, in, it's designed for somebody, it's a series of questions and answers that covers basically the theology of what a Christian believes. And there's old ones. The Heidelberg Catechism the Westminster Catechism. Well, the Gospel Coalition, Timothy Keller is connected to the Gospel Coalition, they've written a new catechism. They've combined these old ones and they've put it in modern words and they've put it in 52 weeks, so you can do one question a week. It's called the New City Catechism. 
Ooh, that's pretty dark. But there, that's kind of what it looks like. And they have one for kids, too. It's excellent. And it's not overwhelming. It's very simple. Anyways, that aside, the first question in the New City Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The verse that goes with that is Romans 14, verses 7 and 8. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, we live to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So it seems like this is saying that as a believer, if we are not our own, if our very self is not our own, but belongs to the Lord, then that means he has actually given me this life, entrusted it to me in this skin, in this space and time. And if stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care, if we put all that together, then it means that I need to steward my life. It's a gift from God. If we put that knowledge against the backdrop of the parable of the three servants, some of you know it as the parable of the talents, I think it enhances this idea. Do you remember this parable? There's a master, and he's going to go away on a long trip. And so he gathers his servants and all his wealth, and he distributes it. And he says, you could call these servants stewards. And he says to the one servant, here's all this money, he gives the second servant half that amount, and he gives the third servant just a little tiny bit. And he goes away. And after a long time, he returns, and he gathers his stewards for a report on his wealth. And the first steward comes in, and he says, oh, Lord, look, I have doubled what you gave me. And there's much rejoicing, and he gets rewarded and given more, and yay, and off he goes. And the second steward comes in to give his report. Oh, and he only had half the amount the first guy did. And he says, oh, Lord, look, I, I doubled what you gave me. Yay, there's much rejoicing. He gets rewarded, much partying, yay. And that's great. He calls in the third guy. Oh, I was kind of scared of you. And I wasn't as good as these guys over here. And so I dug a hole, and I put your silver in the hole and just kept it over there. So here it is. And the master was actually quite ticked off. You could have at least put it in the bank and gained some interest, but you were just lazy and you dug a hole and hid my silver. You're fired. Get out of here. And he takes that silver and he gives it to the guys who worked hard at doubling their investments. Now, of course, in this parable, the master is Jesus. Now, put yourself in the place of one of the stewards. And take any topic we've talked about over the course of this fall in regards to stewardship and put it in the place of the silver, something you've been entrusted with, your time, your abilities, your family, your community, your money, whatever it is that God has given to you. The point is, is that all of us are those stewards. 
all of us. The real question is, which one are you? Now take a moment and put yourself, your life, in place of the silver. You are now both the steward and the silver. How is the return doing on your investment? Or have you hidden yourself away? I think that self-stewardship is a really good topic to wrap up our series with because understanding self-stewardship is the key to being a good steward in all other areas. I want to share with you three principles of self-stewardship today that I've gleaned from the study that I've been doing. I hope they're helpful to you. I'm sure there are others. The first one is the principle of self-denial. To be a good steward of self, we must deny ourselves. It sounds counterintuitive. Because it is. The world and all its various worldviews and religious leaders, they shout very differently out to us, don't they? Let's see, Bob Marley and Buddha, both, they would tell us that if we want to find truth, we should look within ourselves. Pretty sure Oprah has that message too. The Dalai Lama says, I believe that the very purpose of life is to be happy. Aristotle said something similar. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Look to yourself, live for yourself. And you know, if we're just stardust, the product of chance, it's not a bad idea. But that is not reality. There are a couple of things that we need to realize in order to understand who we are and why we should start with self-denial. You need to realize first that you are not your own. God made us. We are not a product of chance. You did not just pop into existence. Boom, oh, there's an adult. I wonder what their name is. We talked last week about how God made us for his glory and to have a relationship with us. He put us here on this planet, which was so miraculously designed for human existence so that we could interact with him and manage this place that he made to dwell in with us. Our telos is a Greek word for ultimate purpose. The end goal of our existence is to bring glory to God and to have a relationship with him. And of course, we know that due to our own sin, we destroyed that relationship. It's broken. We experience that brokenness every day in many ways. And part of that brokenness is living selfishly, living for self. That brokenness and selfishness, it separates us from God. So the second thing we need to realize is that Jesus died for us. While we were broken and in sin, Jesus died for us. God in human form. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 to 20. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about sexual immorality here, but listen to what he says because it totally applies. 
Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. In other words, my very self, physical, body, soul, immaterial, however those parts work together, God bought me and saved me. So all of me, even in my sexuality, in my giving, in my gifts, in my abilities, all of me must strive to glorify God and please him who bought me with a high price and lives within me if I am a believer. I ought to live according to his desire and design because I am his. So you, in the holistic sense of you, the whole package, body and soul, you were made by God for a purpose. Your body as a part of that whole was made to declare the glory of God. And our bodies can inform us and give clues to our personal identity. We need not be split into parts. Body versus identity, that was not God's design. Our world, our culture, they would tell us different. In fact, there is a deep division that runs through secular morality, through all of Western thought and culture. In our modern age of science, we have come to think that reliable knowledge is only that which we can test. And that limits our knowledge to the physical or natural realm, only things that we can taste, touch, hear, see, smell. The problem is that's left things like moral truth on the outside. We don't trust it as reliable knowledge because it's not testable. It's not physical. So what might be true for me might not be true for you because it's personal feelings or preference. We call this the fact-value split. And it runs rampant through our culture, causing all kinds of brokenness and confusion. But the truth of Christ brings freedom and healing to the brokenness, to the split. We're going to be talking more about this fact-value split and how it affects our world, our worldviews, our morality in a Sunday school class in January and February. We're going to combine the adult and youth Sunday school class, and the template for our class will be a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I encourage you, it's available in the church library. You can get it on Amazon. Read it over the Christmas holidays if Canada Post cooperates. And, um, or during the class. Pastor Steph and I will be co-teaching that class. And I hope you can join us because it's such an important topic and one that should be addressed with the compassion and love of Jesus. It, the fact-value split affects so many issues in our culture. We want to invite you in. We want to invite you in to explore our identities in Christ and to combat the fractured thinking offered by the world. So be watching for more of that info and please join us after Christmas. So in order to steward ourselves, we need to deny ourselves. And in order to do that, we must realize we're not our own, we're not our own, and that we were bought with a high price. Now at this stage, 
talking about our whole selves belonging to God, you may be feeling like, but I have rights. I have the right to do what I want. I have the right to do as I please. Well, here's the second part. After realizing that you're not your own, you do need to relinquish your rights. It's part of the self-denial. But in this, you will find freedom. We aren't the first culture to be so self-centered. Even the Corinthians, they probably wrote Paul first before he wrote to them what we have in the New Testament as First and Second Corinthians. And he quotes them, I think, saying, I'm allowed to do anything. Everything is permissible. And he responds with, yeah, but not everything is good for you. Not everything is beneficial. Look, we can either be controlled by the world around us or we can choose to be guided by God's way. And he has our best interests at heart. So why wouldn't we follow his way? I think the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous has it right. If you ever have a chance to read through all 12, I encourage you to do that. The first three are a process of relinquishing control. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. You know what? You could put anything in the place of alcohol. Or you could just stop after powerless. We admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. First step, admitting we don't have control. Step two, believing that God can save me and surrendering my life to him. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He also says in Matthew 16, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your way, your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Paul, always setting a good example for us as believers, even if he makes a mistake and then comes to repentance or whatever in his story, he's always a good example for us. In Philippians 3, he says that he has the right to have confidence in himself and go his own way if anybody does. Listen to him. He says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Mm -mm -mm. But then he goes on. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Paul was all that. He was cream of the crop. He was a pureblood, but still lost 
still separated from God, none of that gave him access to God. He eventually, after literally being knocked on his butt, gave up control to Jesus. That's what it took. Direct, God got a hold of him directly. And thank goodness he did. But he gave up all that other stuff because those things didn't gain him access to Christ. So, the first principle in being a good steward of yourself is to deny yourself. Realize that you are not your own. Relinquish your rights. The next principle of self-love then, oh, of self-stewardship, I gave it away, is self-love. Wait, what? That sounds like the opposite you just said to deny yourself. Now you're saying to love yourself. It's kind of two sides of the same coin. First, you deny yourself and let Jesus take control of your life, and then you love yourself. Here's why. You were made in the image of God. He made you. He values you. So you should value you. He died for you. So he valued you so much that he paid that high of a price for you. If you've done that, and you've chosen to let Jesus rescue you, then you're called to love him by obeying his commands, yes? And what are the greatest commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourselves. So that command, it either commands or implies, either way, that you love yourself. Here's a good example of why and how we are called to love ourselves. Have you ever flown on an airplane? You remember the demonstration they do before you take off? In the unlikely event of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will drop down from the panel above your head. Secure your own mask before helping others. Why do they say to put the oxygen mask on your own face first before you turn to others? Isn't that kind of selfish? Of course not. Imagine this scenario. You've got a parent with little kids, three and four years old, who have no idea what's what, and the plane loses cabin pressure, you're descending fast, the oxygen masks drop, they're oblivious, they're screaming, whatever, and a self-sacrificing parent reaches for the oxygen mask and goes to start putting it on their children first because they love them so much. That parent passes out, the kids pass out, all die needlessly. See, we don't want that scenario, ever. So, of course, the parent puts the oxygen mask on first and then turns to help the more vulnerable around them. You cannot give to others what you yourself do not have. Whether it's mental or emotional energy, love, grace, compassion, the list goes on. Parker Palmer puts it this way, self-care, self-love, is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on the earth to offer to others. You need to be fueled up in order to be a good steward of what God has given you. 
Taking the intentional time and resources to do that is self-love. What does that look like in real life? Well, I have some ideas. I think the first one would be to go after God's kingdom first. In Matthew 6, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes through this whole section there about worry. We have lots of worry these days, right? And he goes on and on about not worrying about things. And at the end of that, he says, seek first God's kingdom, and all else will be given to you. Everything you need. Renewal through inward spiritual disciplines is a good way to go about this. Now, when I say disciplines, I'm not referring to punishments. It's like the discipline of exercising regularly or the discipline of eating well. There are spiritual practices that one becomes disciplined at. Maybe it's time to rediscover some of these. Robert Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says, perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper living. Perhaps you've become weary of frothier experiences and shallow teaching. We just sang Psalm 42, and part of that psalm is talking about when deep calls to deep, we yearn for that kind of connection. Spend time in prayer, meditation. Christianity has an ancient tradition of good meditation where, yes, you empty yourself of the world's worries, but you fill yourself with God. Fasting, study. That catechism I recommended is a good place to start. Devotionals, there's all kinds of access to things online. Versions of scripture. Archibald Alexander, from, he was a Princeton theologian. He said such instruction like that, it's like firewood in a fireplace. Without the fire, the spirit of God, firewood will not in itself produce a warming flame. But without the fuel, there can be no fire either. Psalm 1 paints a picture of those who are in God's word daily. They're like a flourishing tree planted by streams of water. I want to be like that tree. Love of self might also look like creating space in your life. By practicing outward spiritual disciplines like simplicity, solitude, maybe it's saying no to good things. The last thing that your community needs is for you to burn out, to become resentful, to walk away. So please, guard your time. We have a lot of good opportunities in our lives. We get to volunteer, we get to be involved, especially around here. And if you're a gifted, gung-ho personality, you might get approached quite often. But here's the thing, people have to ask. We want to invite you in, and you're not going to know about opportunities unless we talk about them. But just because someone is asking you to do something does not mean that God is calling you to it. Oh, he might be. But not every ask is going to be God calling. You have to be wise. You have to take care of yourself. Spend some time alone. Be still. Be quiet. Choose the things 
that you can handle and that are healthy for you and your loved ones because what you do affects those around you. And then say no to the other things in a nice way. But don't feel guilty. Another example of self-love, observe rest. God rested on the seventh day. John Walton, we, talked, we quoted him last week, suggests that that means that at that point in that cosmic temple, God built the temple, the world was his temple to take up residence in, that after the building was done, that seventh day was when he moved in. And that didn't mean he went to sleep. It meant he started doing what the temple was meant to be used for. He got to enjoy the presence of humans and his relationship with them. Now, God, later in the story, the big story of the Bible, God gave a Sabbath to his people, the Israelites, because they had been slaves who never got rest. And now suddenly, he had redeemed them from slavery, and this was a sign of their freedom. It was time to spend in relationship with God and getting to know him and fostering community with each other. Now, of course, if you are familiar with the story of the Bible, you know they managed to make that into their own shackles by applying too many rules to it. But today, we often just ignore it. Don't martyr yourself by never resting. You need it. God designed it. Make time and actually do something that rejuvenates you. Participate in corporate worship, which is what we're doing right now, where we get together and worship God together. Take that rest, take time away, and don't feel guilty. Balance alone time with community time. And it looks different. Each of us have different ratios of how we want that to play out. But we all need both in different measure. I'm sure there's lots of other examples of self-love, but I think you get my point. Self-love is not simply self-centeredness. It's loving yourself in light of who God sees you to be, and who he made you to be. It's also growing as a disciple of Christ, and actually this goes hand in hand with the last principle, the principle of self-growth. You need to grow yourself. To be a good steward, you need to practice stewardship. How do you become a better professional? Professional development. To be competitive in your field of work, a person needs to stay on top of their industry. Doctors are constantly studying and researching the latest finds. Teachers are taking professional development days. How do you become a better artist or musician? You practice. You have to. It doesn't just magically happen that suddenly you wake up one day and you're an amazing piano player. There are years of practice and discipline behind one virtuoso performance. So how do we become a better steward of what God has given us? We develop it, we invest it, we practice it. And we come back around to the parable of the three stewards. We need to invest in our self-growth to please our master for when he returns. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 26, Paul says, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. 
So I run with purpose in every step. What does this look like for you? Different for each and every one of us. Develop what God has given you. Not what somebody has been given over here who you think is pretty cool. Don't get caught in the comparison game here. Develop what God has given you and use it for his glory, for his kingdom, and for building up his people, the church. Maybe you develop a gift or a talent. Maybe you pursue using your brain because God made you smart. Maybe you can build like nobody's business. Maybe you're a good entrepreneur. Maybe you are wealthy and good at making money. And you know what? That's not bad if money is not your God. Maybe you are really good at cleaning. Maybe you love studying God's word. Invest in or multiply what God has given you. What he has entrusted to your care. I knew a young lady in Kamloops who inspired me to this. We'll call her Jane. That's not her real name. She owned all three booster juices in Kamloops at one time. She has her MBA. She taught at Thompson Rivers University. She had won Young Entrepreneur of the Year at one point, and she now owns her own cafe. She isn't a believer, but oh man, she would make a good one. I met her about 11 years ago, several weeks after I moved back to Canada from Japan. Colin and I had a plan. We were going to become business owners, well, I was, and we were going to run a bike-powered smoothie business. Don't ask. So we would soon, but we soon discovered when we got to Kamloops that there was already a smoothie business. Booster Juice had recently been opened in Kamloops. They were under construction and looking for management. So not to be daunted by the fact that someone had beat us to the smoothie business idea, I decided I would go get that job and eventually buy out the owner. I went and met Jane, and we immediately hit it off, and she hired me on the spot. I spent many hours with her over the next six months, and then God surprised us with Isaac, and that completely changed the trajectory of my life, as you can see. Um, But I learned some valuable lessons from Jane in those six months that I spent with her and her entrepreneurial spirit, one of which was about self-growth. She said that whenever you set a goal for yourself, it should scare you just a little bit. It makes sense, because growth isn't often comfortable, is it? So maybe our goal setting should put us in such a place that's just slightly uncomfortable. Maybe some of us just need to think about setting some goals, period, instead of letting life just happen to us. So we aren't like the steward who just hid his silver away. And don't worry about your investment taking time. Because you know what? It's more about the journey than accomplishing that in the end. We are people of eternity. And the end goal, our ultimate purpose, our telos, is to glorify God. And that's done every day on the journey. It's who we are. Don't let your potential for God's glory go to waste if you have an opportunity to develop it. The key is doing what you're doing for God's glory. If it won't glorify God or it's immoral, don't pursue it. Pardon me, don't pursue it. If you aren't sure 
then seek out advice. Proverbs 19.20 says, get all the advice and instruction you can so that you will be wise the rest of your life. Some may say, oh, but I'm sick, or I'm disabled, or I'm shy. I might point you to Moses, who tried to get out of leading God's people to freedom because he had a stutter. God wants to use you where he put you. He knows who you are. He knows that you can bloom and grow where you're planted. And let me say, even if you are suffering, perhaps dying, you can still grow where you are planted. And here's why. As Christians, we need to learn how to suffer and how to die well. We need to know and learn how to let God use that in our lives. We, as people who maybe aren't suffering, need to learn compassion and how to gather around those people who ask for help, who reach out. That's a blessing to us. Sometimes through suffering, as we were even discussing last night at Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, sometimes through suffering, that person themselves is able to hear from God and and change in ways as they reach out through their pain. So, even in suffering and death, God can use you where you are if you let him. My dad, who was a pastor, traveled to China when I was 12. I think it was 1986, and China was still very closed to Christianity. The church was very underground. Pastors were persecuted and imprisoned for decades, some of them. Believers were persecuted. And so my dad went with a group of pastors to try and minister to a few of them in some small way. I remember when he came back, he had lots of pictures and stories, but I remember one picture in particular, and the story and picture was of a tiny, old, little crippled lady. I don't remember her name, and I don't remember where she lived, uh, but I do remember she had terrible arthritis, and she couldn't afford medical help, or perhaps it wasn't accessible for her, I don't know, but she was so shriveled up, she could no longer stand. She lived in a tiny, concrete, unesthetic apartment. She was a nobody, a shut-in. I also remember her picture because she had this huge, beautiful smile. And you know why? Because at the back of her apartment, she had a little closet with a curtain over it. And that, behind that curtain were shelves that were filled with Bibles and literature, Christian literature, that she could provide to the underground church. Pastors and Christians would come to her and pick up this illegal material, God's word, and she'd take it, it would be then dispersed, she wouldn't take it, they would take it to the other believers. And she was ignored by the authorities because what could she do? God used her for who she was in a mighty way. No matter who you are, you can grow and bloom where you are planted if you will love yourself like God does and let him grow you and use you. In conclusion, God calls us to take care of and grow all the things he's given us. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. He is our maker, our redeemer, 
We owe him our very selves. In fact, if we're to steward what he's given us, then we need to steward our very selves. We do that by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. We steward ourselves by loving ourselves, putting on that oxygen mask before we put it on others. Make sure you're fueled up by resting, saying no to the overflow of life, setting boundaries for yourself and practicing inward and outward spiritual disciplines, worship with others. And we steward ourselves by growing ourselves. Study, learn, develop your skills. Practice, don't waste your potential. From stewarding our own lives springs our ability to maximize the gifts God has given us. It's not a static idea. It's a lifelong learning and growing process. But we want to start here with self-stewardship at the base and then incorporate the specifics we have explored over the last few weeks of our stewardship series. That way, when the master returns, he will see that we have doubled or tripled our investment entrusted to our care and we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us, for putting up with us, for loving us so much that you sent your son to redeem us, to die and rise again, that we might have a chance at life with you forever the way you intended. God, in the meantime, help us to redeem the world around us as we get to be part of that. Help us to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. Thank you for trusting us with stuff. May we be found worthy of that trust placed in us. In your almighty name, amen. Would you please stand one more time?